Hi everyone and welcome back to Dot to Dot, an education podcast for teachers that shines light on things that are working well in industry and connects them to the classroom. I'm Ryder Tracy, Head of Educational Transformation at Creatable, and in today's episode, I have the great pleasure of talking with Dr. Carolyn O'Brien. Welcome, Carolyn. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Ryder. It's lovely to be here. Now, at this point, I would normally do a little bit of a bio, introduce you to the audience and talk through all the experiences you've had and why we're talking today. But your bio is absolutely immense. So instead, I thought maybe we'd play a quick game of true and false. You up for it? (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) Uh, Carolyn O'Brien, you have a biomedical engineering doctorate. True or false? True. You were a postdoctoral fellow at MIT. True. You are an avid skydiver. False. Your area of expertise spans from AI to machine learning to health sciences. True. You have just been appointed the Chief Data Officer and Head of Product at Affinity. True. You are joining us for this interview from Bermuda. True. That's awesome. I, I, uh, I, I thought I'd have a crack at doing the bio that way just to start us off. I love Sorry it. Sorry about the skydiving question. <laughs> totally fine. When we've been putting together assessments in school, you know, that that kind of age-old, are the answer in multiple choices always C? I thought, oh, all of these answers are true, so I better put something in there that's false. (laughs) (laughs) So you're in Bermuda, you're working with Affinity. I'd love you to tell me a little bit more about that. What What's taken you to Bermuda and and what is Affinity doing? Right. So uh, Affinity is a Bermuda-based company. So I moved here um, to take on the role of Chief Data Officer and that happened in November. And then in the last couple of weeks, I've also taken on the responsibilities for the product development within the company. And so we are an AI company. So we build pieces of AI that change and try and impact human interactions. And so we're constantly developing new tools, techniques and products to enable us to deliver that to our customers, which are worldwide. So Bermuda being based here, one of the main reasons is we are between our two biggest markets. So our biggest markets being North America and the UK. We Our technology sits in contact centres of large consumer-facing businesses like telecommunications carriers, banks, insurers, anywhere with large contact centres. Being right smack bang in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean is a wonderful time zone to to be in. Um, I was previously doing my role, I've been with Affinity for four years. I was doing my role, uh, it was a global role, but I was doing it from Sydney. And so that meant a lot of nights. So, you know, while I, while I, you know, I was sad to leave Sydney, I was happy to be in a, in a normal time zone. It turns out Bermuda's a beautiful little island. So it's been a real bit of a whirlwind getting here, but very happy to be here now. Oh, excellent. Who knew Bermuda's a beautiful little island? I think next time we'll have to do this one face to face. But 35 hour flights, it might be a little bit, you know, a bit, a bit painful to get there, but, but worth the half an hour. Yeah. In Bermuda. Sounds it. <laughs> So one thing I'm really interested in on this podcast, I guess, is I was pretty keen to discuss with you the diversity of your career. Like you have such a diverse skill set. Some of it's really, really technical, you know, but um, and there's been a lot of differences that sit within there. So I'm curious around any sort of skills that you've drawn upon in every role. Like are there some of those soft skills or some of those skills that transcend kind of regardless of the job, you know, the skill that just transcends all the way through? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So I, you know, when I look when I look at my career and I kind of look back and yes, I've kind of lot worked in different 
industries. I've worked, you know, solving lots of different types of problems. I did my degree in um, engineering and maths applied in aerospace. So uh, I've, you know, launched a ramjet and I, I built a kind of my my skill set on a, uh, an area called computational fluid dynamics. So kind of modeling at the time hypersonic flight turns out those same skills and techniques and tools that you use to model hypersonic flight, you also use to model things like blood flow and arteries. So it's a challenging uh, physics problem to solve and you can use the same computational methods. And so I you know, moved into healthcare that way and then all of a sudden you're using kind of use the same types of tools to solve medical problems. You go, oh, well, there's this whole other side of solving problems, which is around data science and using large amounts of data to be able to understand and predict outcomes. And so I slowly kind of moved from physics-based models and then kind of integrating that with machine learning and more data science-like approaches to solving those healthcare problems. And then realized that I could work, you know, in data science with with that skill set. And so I went into I went into a data science role and have, you know, been working for the last seven years in like consumer behavior and trying to predict how humans are gonna behave and it's kind of more economics types problems that I'm solving. But again, using a, a similar set of tools that I picked up along the way, but it all kind of came back to my high school. And in high school, I loved maths. It was a, a period of time when I kind of thought, oh, I might do medicine or I might do something else, but I really kind of always came back to maths. And everything along the way has been really just working upon those principles of, of maths and then applying it to different problems along the way. I very much advocate the importance of transferable skills, but kind of core like understanding and learning kind of the core principles of mathematics and engineering and then using that to go and explore and solve problems in in different areas uh depending on where the demand is and interest is and funding and uh yeah and all of that oh wow it's there's there's a few things that resonated with me there so for uh i've got a a a practical question but the the idea i guess of wherever you go there's going to be problems that need to be solved there's a bit of a debate that happens in education in primary school, the advancement of technology being balanced with kind of the traditional approach to learning, you know, particularly with your mathematical kind of background and, you know, with your, with your own kids. I've, I'm curious, is there a, a value in learning? This is what I sort of heard from you, I think, but I want to play it back. Is there a value in learning the foundation of kind of mathematics and then being able to pick up the tools and technology and extrapolate it? Or should we cut straight to applied learning using the technology? See, I think that's it's a really good it's a really good question. I like I'm in a you know a very I'm in AI. I work in AI. I develop AI technology. And and interesting, I didn't learn how to code until I was like 23. So I yeah I I didn't need to code. I mean up until that point because coding for me is really implementing a problem set that I want to solve, you know, but I had to have formulated that problem before I go and, you know, work on it with the code. And and the same thing with the calculator, you get given a calculator, but what is the problem that you're trying to solve? So the art is in really trying to formulate, decompose the problem and then design a solution and kind of then go and implement it. The core skills that you learn there, I think that you need to learn is, is being out, you know, critical thinking skills, problem solving skills, but you also, as this, the world is evolving and the technology is evolving, if you're going to solve ho- complex problems, you need you know, the full toolkit. And there's a lot of things to do with algorithms and, and science, mathematics, statistics. Those tools become very, very powerful at solving very complex problems. And so having that 
knowledge and training in that is really important. Andrew Moore, who's, you know, used to be the Dean of Carnegie Mellon, you know, which is one of the best AI um, universities in the world. He, you know, he talks a lot about, you don't need to teach coding to a, you know, to a 12 year old, Um, you need to teach them maths, teamwork, critical thinking skills. Those are the things that, you know, as a foundation that you really need to learn. And then they can, you can pick up these other implementation skills later on. It's really good insight because as you say, you know, the jobs of tomorrow don't necessarily exist today, you know, and it's a really evolving space and it's evolving faster and faster and faster and faster. And so there's a bit of a kind of push, I guess, for, for, you know, all these kind of phrases like future focus skills and 21st century learning and these kind of, you know, concepts and ideas. But, you know, I, I, what I'm hearing is, you know, that it's still fundamentally, you know, you still need to have that strong foundation to be able to launch from, you know, and then it's about the adaptability for working in the environment, you know, and having that awareness for context. So the problem solving, the critical thinking, the um, analysis, the application of all of those kind of things uh, seems to be the driver. And the teamwork as well. You know, that's the other big thing that people don't, when you think you're in technology and you're in these really tech-heavy world, it's all about you and how and all those skills that you learnt at school. But it's also how you interact with others and how well you can work in teams because you can't deliver any products on your own. You always need to work with people. And so kind of having that having the, that skill as well and then, you know, allows you to adapt and become very impactful very quickly um, in the market later on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Although I, given where you work now, I do have a, a bit of a question for you around teamwork and teaming with computers because uh, <laughs> on the, well, I do have a confession to make first, Carolyn. Um, you are talking to a 2005 uh, regional runner-up in Scissor Paper Rock. Uh, you know, it's a pretty <laughs> intense uh, Scissor Paper Rock circuit in Sydney at the time. And, you know, I was pretty quick on the draw, you know, and I had a tendency to, uh, you know, perform pretty well under the pressure there. So I just want to <laughs> let you know that going into it. So I was intrigued um, to see on, on your website, um, as one of the ways to try and explain about, um, I guess, computational thinking or predictive kind of machine learning, um, you've got a game where you can play uh, scissor, paper, rock against the computer. So I obviously, you know, with with my pedigree with scissor, paper, rock, I, you know, thought I would be quite handy at it. What I found was after about five or six rounds of playing scissor, paper, rock against the computer, it was increasingly difficult for me to win. Can you tell me a little bit about, uh, I guess, what the computer's doing there and why it becomes harder for me to to beat the computer over time when I'm playing scissor, paper, rock against it? Sure, sure. So what we're trying to do here is we're trying to train a computer to compete with the human and hopefully beat them, right? So a machine is artificially intelligent if it can, uh, if it can perform at the human level, not necessarily the expert, but kind of the average human level. And so, what we're trying to do is, we're trying to train our computer to at least compete with the average person, right? And scissor paper rock is a great game to try, you know, and 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 learn from. So, importantly, we're teaching the computer to play this game and only this game. So, this is kind of this narrow, this idea of narrow intelligence. We're kind of we're teaching them teaching them how to play this game but they're going to learn by observing you and seeing how you play and trying to incorporate that information into and predict what action you're going to take next and so what will happen is in the first round 
they'll just do a round a, a random play uh, scissors paper or rock and it'll choose a random one and then you will go in with your strategy and what will happen is over time usually a couple of games it will start learning to predict what you're going to do so often especially in scissors paper rock people will follow you know either um, an inherent kind of behavioral thing that they do so they'll always you know they might go rock rock or they might go rock scissors and so they'll try and learn that and anticipate it not and in a while that it can end up you know it ends up becoming at least as competent as the human um and then so at that point that's where we where we can demonstrate that we've made an artificially intelligent system and that's effectively what we're doing with our technology we're kind of giving it a lot of examples of good outcomes and bad outcomes and we're going to try and pair humans differently to try and either drive good outcomes and 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 try and um, prevent bad outcomes and that's what our technology does in a very large enterprise environment um, but the principles are that you know we come back to this kind of rock paper scissors game that we show on online as a way to kind of demonstrate how we're building those those machines as the games become more complex obviously the algorithms get a little bit you know get a bit more complicated that's the industry that we're in and we're always trying to kind of build new technology to compete in more more complex games <laughs> well it was quite annoying because because I guess fundamentally what you're saying is that I have a pattern in my play which the computer can anticipate. So I, I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll get around this and I'll be as kind of random or sporadic as I could possibly be. Um, but still, it still managed to kind of outsmart me. I don't like to admit that, but it did manage to outsmart me. Um, so is there, what, what it boils down to is um, that there are patterns, often subconscious patterns, that people have in their kind of behaviours and then that the computer can anticipate them and help predict and support um, positive outcomes. It's it's pretty fascinating to think about, you know, as a, as a technology. As a, as a teacher, I guess I'm, I have two questions. <laughs> Firstly, I think the capacity for that to occur, like the technology existing and being you know, in play now in the world right now um, is something that I wasn't so aware of. Like I'm aware of kind of on the social media, you know, like the targeted advertising and the using the data points, you know, I book him for a round of golf and then next weekend I've got 10 ads asking me if I, you know, want to rebook or go on a golf trip or, you know, buy some new shoes or whatever. Um, so I guess the question for me is because it's about embedding into like embedding into real life you know it's not as intrusive it's kind of subtle you know in in its application are there are there things that like should I be talking to my kids like should teachers be um, embedding things into their lesson around around this and raising awareness and talking about it or yeah I think look AI is one of those things that's it's emerging it's being more readily adopted um Everyone, you know, a lot of businesses want AI, right? They're kind of looking at those those social media platforms and things that have, you know, generate a lot of value by using this type of intelligence. And so they're trying to readily incorporate it. I would say the applications and the use cases of it right now are in that kind of low-hanging fruit, like simple problems that they're solving or things that are very poorly optimised right now where, you know, that if they were optimised with a machine, they might deliver a better outcome. And so that's where you're kind of seeing the better use cases. So targeted advertising was, you know, it was basic, you know, and and, and in search engines, it's kind of basic. You've got a, a list of things and they're being ranked 
can you rank them a little bit different and deliver a better outcome? And, you know, it makes sense. Yes, of course you can. And kind of simple kind of stuff. It's not, it's not kind of crazy, scary, general intelligence where machines are doing things smarter than humans or anything like that. So it's kind of like small, like small things. But at the same time, even though small and, and kind of what, you know, even su- like you called it like a subtle use case can still incorporate types of biases because these these AI technologies are trying to change customers' behavior, right? Their buying behavior or their um, their sale, like so sales or their or their or even their service outcomes in even where we work, or they might be trying to engage them. So social media trying to engage them more. So they're trying to change the behavior of the user. And if they're trying to change it in a way, if it's trying to change it, it, it could potentially change it in a way that's not, you know, not good. And this there's this concept of like responsible AI right now. Like we should be thinking about how our AI is being used. What is the use case and where is it actually and how is it actually changing behavior? Is it leading to unfair outcomes for some people? Is it discriminating against a group of people unfairly? Is it creating very antisocial behavior in in people? Is there a harmful uh, part of this AI? And, And even very subtle use cases can lead to some of these scenarios. And so all of AI providers now and the, and the whole kind of data science community in general over the last year or so have been thinking a lot more on this idea that the AI needs to be responsible and therefore it needs to be eth- there needs to be some ethics and a layer of ethics that go with, with AI. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty complex, isn't it? The more you kind of dive into it. It's a very complex issue and it's very, you know, the, you know, it's hard because it's hard for a user to kind of appreciate how it can be biased and that's why the onus is on us building the technology to ensure that we're embedding the right ethics into the product itself, whether it's a product or the service or whatever the tool is to ensure that it's actually, because we're, we're the ones building the algorithm so, you you know, you can be aware of how 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 they could be potentially creating it. We can mitigate some of that. That, that harmful impact um, through better product design or, or just or assessment or or something like that. That's a that's a big focus area for us at the moment. Yeah, and I guess the I mean ultimately the data you have to work with is the data that is input by the user. You know about their kind of profile. You know, in the, like you can only collect information that's input. You know um, that 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 exists there. So I guess there's some kind of thinking in around you know what we what we share and what we use and where we put it and how it's used like all those terms and conditions things you know that um you scroll through and click agree <laughs> and you whether you opt in for services now or opt out or you accept the cookies on your on your screen um there's controls that are coming in around data protection um, of individuals and consumers and more broadly like like humans in general like they can they can you know it doesn't necessarily have to be the consumer but anyone that's being acted upon by AI you know has the ability to kind of understand how it, at least their information is being used uh, that's you know and that's a hard thing because there's this thing idea there's kind of data going in but there's also this idea that there's this black box with AI because what we're effectively doing with AI is we're trying to train it with lots of data to kind of perform a task and so the training and the algorithms become very, very complex. And so it's hard to even understand how the data is being used in those algorithms. Sometimes you then just need to assess what's the outcomes coming out. Yeah, and would be difficult to anticipate too, I, I would imagine, you know, how it always um, plays out. So let me uh, help me get the crystal ball out. 
like what are the implications for teaching and learning you know when i when i was first teaching in the classroom there's no kind of interactive whiteboard and certainly the prevalence of you know ipads and things like this you know weren't to the same degree that they are now as uh, you know things like ai kind of develop you know can you could you give me a bit of a a future scan you know what are the sorts of things that we might see in classrooms into into the future so i think the students are using the technology. I mean, they're active users of the technology and so they want to learn a little bit more about how the technology is created. So I think they're, you know, I talked about not knowing coding until I was 23 and that, you know, not being necessary, but I think there's going to be more of an appetite to learn it so that they can understand the technology that they're working with. And I actually think that's really important because, you know, even on this topic of responsible AI, but AI being one part of, of the technology landscape, I think, as we become more actively engaged with the technology, having people of all ages understand it is the best way for us to kind of manage how it, how best to use it in the future. And so I think we'll see more of or more of that coming into the classroom. But I think what you'll see is because technology is, is growing so rapidly, it's going to be hard to kind of keep up with the kind of, um, you know, for teachers, I think, you know, even me to understand kind of how the technology is changing so quickly, how to um, understand it, incorporate it, but I think just coming back to those kind of core principles and those critical thinking things and trying to, you know, problem solving skills, approaching technology with the same lens in the classroom, I think, you know, I do think you will see a bit more coding being used to, to understand or to kind of like reverse engineer technology because they're interested in it. That will come about and the coding languages are changing quite a bit and, and but the idea that they can kind of build their own technology a lot faster. So I think in younger years, I think it's quite amazing. And I know Creative has done an amazing job already. I think one of the initiatives around building, um, letting the students build filters, you know, for their, for their, um, for their Instagram was great because I think that's what, you know, students are wanting to do. Um, and so I think the initiatives like that, I think are going to be really powerful in, in the classroom. But I think the teachers are going to have to get pretty handy, um, in being able to approach all of these questions that they have on the technology and how to understand it. And I think that, you know, these old concepts, you know, like I remember when I got first, you know, I first did mechanical engineering and they they brought in an internal combustion engine. We started learning about that. And the kind of first thing we did was reverse engineer uh, internal combustion engine. Concepts like that, I think are going to be really, really important and kind of like doing stuff, activities like that inside the classroom to understand our technology, I think is going to be where you're going to see more of the the demand. Not necessarily where it's going to be executed because it's hard, but there's going to be more of a demand for that. Um, and then, it, which is harder in like you know in in digital like world, doing that and decomposing it and, and things. But I think creativity teachers are going to have to think creatively about how to do that. I was hoping the answer was going to be. Uh, something along the lines of, yeah, it'll be fine. There's going to be this technology that's going to, you know, face recognition, all the kids' behaviours through the day. They're going to tell you how much time on task they've had and, you know, we're going to have all this additional data. But but what I'm hearing is it's those human attributes and teachers are fantastic at questioning and, and creating experiences for kind of unpacking and exploring. I'm just thinking about the mess in my classroom it's coming a theme this season me talking about mess in my classroom but um the kind of mess of deconstructing and reverse engineering you know all of these things across the room but it's um it seems to just always be coming back to that kind of fundamental like 
curiosity, you know, inquisitive, you know, have that kind of foundational knowledge so that when something is in front of you, you're able to make connections between um, various KLAs, you know, different subject areas, and then pull it together to be solutions focused um, as as you go. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think as well, like, you know, you know, I just think about it, like, all we, the key, like even on a phone, you're going to see so many different capabilities and functionalities. And it's going to be like overwhelming. And the kids are going to be sitting there because they're interacting with these things, either they're seeing their parents and trying to understand and the questions are like, I know, I can kind of, I can see it already with my kids, but the questions all around about that, and they're, they're coming from all different angles. And it's not like, oh, we can unpack one thing one day it's basically in, ten, in one day you'll get 10 different questions on 10 different types of things and you have to kind of think about without just saying I don't know I don't know how it works I'm sorry I have no idea trying to approach and go I think these this is how I think it you know would work and let's think about the problem and kind of break down I think that's where it's going to um I think that's where it much I don't have a crystal ball though so I don't know if that's and I certainly don't sit in the classroom like you do writers so um, seeing seeing it firsthand, but I do have small little children out that door that have been banging on that door. So that's what that banging was a little bit earlier, um, who are asking me these questions all the time. So um, yeah, a bit of firsthand firsthand knowledge there. Well, let's let's dig into that one one more step. Um, if you could teach every ten year old in the world, so you had this magic moment where Dr. Carolyn O'Brien has an hour with every ten year old in the world and they're going to learn it. They're going to walk out with whatever you've given them in that one hour. Um, what what would you teach? I'm very biased. I think, you know, obviously I love maths, but I, I think for a 10-year-old, they're at that age where they, you know, they get becoming very confident. And I do like the idea of maths is when you can, you know, there is only one answer. And, you know, if we could all work towards getting that answer. And I can remember when I understood a, a topic and I'm thinking about it when I was 10 as well. I, I'm kind of thinking back what I would teach everyone and I'd, I'd aspire to get everyone across the line on would be negative numbers. It is so basic a principle. Like it's it kind of the, it, the building blocks for algebra but the idea of positive and negative numbers. And I this, this, the technique I was taught as a 10-year-old to solve that problem I still use daily. Like solving very complex problems I still think about, you know, positive and negative numbers and I like my teacher I couldn't get it I remember sitting in the class sweating about it and my teacher who was wonderful at the time kind of explained this concept of like an army and like you've got the positives on one side and the negatives on the other and they kind of take each other out so you know if it's five positive and five negatives five minus five is zero because they all take each other out and that was just when I got, I was like, Eureka. And I felt so confident going to everything. And it really get, because maths is all about confidence. If you can continue with it, you'll keep studying it. And if I could get every, if I could get all the 10 year olds in the class and I could get that concept done and them all to get it, I feel like we would have, you know, I think we would have a lot more mathematicians out there. And I think we would have a lot more, I think, you know, I think we would give them, all you know, at least the very basics of the skills that they need to solve the problems that I'm dealing with day to day right now in a very kind of advanced field of mathematics. Oh, what a fantastic answer! I love that. And my favorite thing about that was I could see that moment in the classroom, like just going back and that teacher and 
you know, talking through like it's a really it's quite an obtuse way to teach negative numbers, you know, through like a military confrontation. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's resonated, right? And that like that that kind of engagement, you know, I mean that's that's what it's all about. Skills that are gonna set us up for success in the future. And it doesn't like you said, one answer, that's what we want but lots of pathways to get there. And uh, that's I think that's a really beautiful sentiment for us to finish on. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I could talk to you all day about uh, AI, ethics, data collection, data science, hypersonic flight. I don't think we unpacked that enough. Um, but thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Reflecting on my conversation with Carolyn today, I had a few takeaways. The first one was that it's pretty validating that foundational skills such as mathematics are always going to be required. After all, there's a reason we spend so much time on numeracy in schools. The second was that the future is going to throw up all sorts of challenges and opportunities, and it is the adaptable, critical thinking problem solvers that are going to find the most success. It was nice to hear that the people creating the AI are also motivated for the AI to be ethical. Because I didn't love how easily the computer anticipated my rock, paper, scissors play. I didn't think I had a pattern, but clearly I do. And my lack of awareness for that and the computer's awareness of that makes me a little bit nervous. And finally, I thought about what I can actually do with this information. I think I'll definitely take on the reverse engineering with my kids. Let's take it apart and see if we can put it back together. Let's click the button and see what happens. Let's create opportunities for applied learning because these are the skills that our kids are going to need in the future. Thanks for listening to Dot to Dot. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave a review. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't, what you'd like more of, or what you learned. Reviews help us reach more listeners so that we can keep bringing you awesome conversations about what you want to hear about. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you can keep up to date with each episode as they come out. Dot to Dot is a creatable podcast hosted by me, Ryder Tracy, and produced by Sophie Ellis. This episode was recorded on Darawal and Darug Country. Catch you next week.